I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Unhoused, unsettled, and soon unfed, the World Food Program says it will soon be forced to suspend food aid to 1.4 million people in Chad, many of whom barely survived the war in neighboring Sudan. Divide and conquer. A Muslim man living in the Netherlands was shocked to see an anti-Islamic populist elected yesterday. He says he fears for the future of a country that once felt welcoming. Flight risks. A field manager on a small Scottish island tells us about the sinking feeling when a small handful of birds returned to roost instead of the hundreds he was expecting. Yearly adopter. The mother of a BC five-year-old who was born without a right ear says she'll be getting one implanted sooner than most kids in her situation, partly thanks to a unique collaboration with a local archaeologist. Getting the axe for years, Happy Tree was a Christmas fixture in a St. John's Mall, adorable or abhorrent, depending on your viewpoint. Now he's calling it quits and his replacement has some locals pining for a comeback. And poultry in motion. A wild turkey that became the unofficial mascot of a New Jersey town has been relocated after causing headaches for drivers. One local says she would happily sit in traffic for turkeys. As it happens, the Thursday edition, radio that takes on a turkulean task. The World Food Program wants us all to know that the clock is ticking for Chad. Since war erupted in neighboring Sudan in April, people displaced by the fighting have been pouring into the country, creating a crisis so severe that the WFP says it's on the verge of suspending food aid to 1.4 million residents and new arrivals. The World Food Program had already announced that starting in December, it will be suspending assistance to internally displaced people and refugees in Nigeria, Central African Republic, and Cameroon. Jan Sede Majiangar is a regional representative with the World Food Program. We reached him today in Dakar, Senegal. Jan Sede, I'm wondering what goes into a decision like this one. What pushes a UN agency to the point of having to tell more than a million people, we can't help you anymore? Well, what what made us make this decision, this unfortunate decision, is that the recent conflict in neighboring Sudan has driven hundreds of thousands of people across the border into Chad, which is already home to another thousands of refugees. And as we're talking now, the country hosts over one million refugees from Sudan, from Central African Republic, from uh, Nigeria, from Cameroon, making Chad the country with the largest refugee population in the African continent. 
And this, in addition to another 2.1 million people in Chad who are acutely food insecure. These are people who don't know. If you talk to them today, they cannot tell you where the next meal will be coming tomorrow. And in this condition, those people depend or rely on the food assistance provided by the World Food Program. And at the time we were talking, we are no longer in a position to continue providing this assistance because the increasing needs are not keeping pace with the funding, with the resources available for the World Food Program to continue providing this much needed assistance. What is it like for you to have to tell people that? It's a very difficult decision um, because um, for the people who are living Darfur, who are living Sudan, who are crossing the border into Chad, these are people who have abandoned everything. They have lost almost everything. And they, they arrive in Chad with nothing except with the stories, with the tales of violence, with the, the tales of destruction. And these people are destitute when they arrive in Chad. And having to tell them that tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, you're not going to have assistance. It's a very difficult decision. And we have no option but to warn the world that something needs to be done. We need the world needs to wake up and to step up support so that we do not leave those people without any assistance. They have already lost everything and we cannot afford to let them in charge without nothing. How much money do you need? What is the shortfall right now? At the, t- at, the, at the time being, what we need for the next six months, meaning from uh, from November to April next year, we need over 185 million US dollars. This is just to provide the emergency food and nutrition assistance to those crossing the border from Sudan and many other people in Chad affected by the the various crises because we have also uh, people from Chad who are internally displaced as a result of conflict, uh, as a result of communal tensions between uh, uh, in their areas, especially around the Lake Chad. And those people for months, they also have not been receiving assistance due to funding constraints that the World Food Program is experiencing in the country. So it is extremely important and urgent for us to get this money now so we can ensure they receive the assistance they they need over the next six months. Normally, where does this money come from? Where does the bulk of your contributions come from? Well, the World Program relies on voluntary contributions from government donors. So our the bulk of our contribution comes from our donors, from our government donors. Mm-hmm. We have also individuals who give money, but the bulk of it, the largest part of it comes from government donors. But we know that the need is so great and this crisis is still unfolding, you know, better better than than many. So is there a way to make it more predictable, make the funding more predictable so that you're not having to issue these kinds of pleas in, in the most difficult of times? It, it, it's a very, uh, it's a good idea, but very difficult maybe to to mm-hmm. implement because we are talking about emergency situations. Because we are talking about needs that arise without uh, prediction. So um, we need flexibility, and we need people to come in. And especially when WP relies on voluntary contributions, there is less we can do right now to be more predictable than how the the the, the event 
events, how the, uh, the the conflicts, how the situation unfolds. However, another way to address this 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 increasing humanitarian needs is to invest in the type of assistance we call resilience building. What does resilience building look like? Well, the resilience building for refugees uh, looks like providing, for instance, refugees with access to land, to to farming land, to agricultural land, so they can be able to 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 produce food for themselves. For instance, they can be able to produce. Uh, uh, market gardening, uh, to engage in market gardening activities where they can produce uh, uh, green vegetables, they can produce all sort of food that is uh, available. And we have land available in Eastern Chad, in Western Chad, and everywhere uh, uh, in the country to make this happen. There is so much need around the world, as you know, and, and as you get people to, to, to take note and hear what you're saying, how optimistic are you that, that the money you need, that that $185 million, it, that shortfall is going to be closed, that you're going to get the money you need before January? Well, the, the call is, 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 is out there and uh, we, we will continue. We will continue talking to our different partners. And uh, um, well, we, we, we hope that the call will be, will be heard and that people considering the, the, the uh, considering the scale, the scale of the, uh, uh, of what's happening across the border and considering the number of people crossing into Chad, uh, I believe that people will hear this call and this step out support so that we can be able to meet the urgent needs and also uh, uh, address the uh, the longer term needs for people to be able to provide for themselves. Joan Sede, thank you for your time. Ciao. Joan Sede Majiangar is a regional representative with the World Food Program in Dakar, Senegal. That's where we reached him. Not far off the east coast of the Scottish mainland is the Isle of May, a small, rugged place that's rich in wildlife, including seabirds and seals. Mark Newell works as a field manager there. He monitors a population of aquatic birds called shags, and on October 31st, he waited for them to return. But what he saw and didn't see shook him. We reached him in Peebles, Scotland. Mark, take us back to that October night. You were on the Isle of May. What happened? The trip out to the island uh, was to see the shags returning to their evening uh, roosts on the cliffs um, from their feeding grounds um, closer to the mainland. And normally I'd be seeing hundreds of birds streaming back to the island. Uh, but on this night, uh, it was just one or two stragglers struggling to reach the island. And what shape were those stragglers in? Um, most of them were um, sort of just about reaching the island, but not necessarily heading for their normal uh, clifftop spot. Some of them were sort of settling on low rocks um, and clearly not in a full healthy state, uh, looking quite sort of disheveled and um, and weak. What is that like like for you, someone who's been tracking them so closely? What was it like to see them in that situation and in such small numbers? 
It's quite distressing because you know there's there's nothing you can really do. You know they're they're out of reach, and also we don't have the the ways of um, provisioning them. Um, but just to see so few of them, you know that un, sort of lack of understanding of where they've really disappeared to. You know they've um, you know we we knew at that point that quite a few were being found uh, dead along the the coastal mm. shores, but just. It didn't account for the, the sort of such low numbers. Just before we started speaking, I started looking at some photographs. They're they're beautiful birds. Just describe for our listeners what they look like. These common shags or European. I mean, shags. Uh, yeah, European shags are they're very similar to uh, cormorants that you get various species of in um, North America. So they're they're very dark coloured at distance. They look black with a, a sort of long slender neck and a, a slender bill, but close up. They've got this incredible green sheen to to all their body feathers and this amazing emerald eye um, that uh, looks out on you. So they're you know, they're quite sleek um, sleek birds. They're pretty ungainly when they're on on land. They're obviously designed for swimming um, uh, and at depth. They're not the strongest flies. They fly very low to the water, but they, they yeah they make their way back to their preferred ledges. What do you think might have happened? Do you think they could have just been blown off course? Um, We know um, from a good number of the birds that we uh, monitor on the Isle of May, uh, we also fix uh, coloured rings or bands to their legs. um, And these are individually engraved, so we can sort of then track them um, if they're seen uh, other bits of the coast. And we had had, have had reports covering sort of several hundred miles uh, down the the British coastline, well away from their normal wintering areas. We knew that some had attempted to leave where it is that they they spend the winter and, and attempting to find some somewhere else down the coastline that was more sheltered and, and gave, giving them the opportunity to feed. Um, but more also sheltered from a storm. Yeah, as a result of the storms, they, they were just uh, attempted to, to get out of that area. Mm-hmm. But uh, obviously, if they um, didn't make that move quick enough, then uh, they were uh, unable to feed and then succumbing to the sort of extreme weather over those um, preceding uh, 10 days or so. Do you think that they've survived and are just not coming back or do you think they've died we estimate um at the moment we're still getting records in uh, people finding them uh along the coast along the sort of um on the beaches and that um and it does look like we probably lost over 50 percent of the island population that have, that have died in that event um how many birds and those that been, i mean it could we well, on the island itself, we have about 600 pairs, uh, so 1,200 birds. So we'll have you know, lost hundreds um, in this uh, storm. And, but it's not uh, just the colony that we work on. Um, the weather event uh, affected other colonies up and down the coast. So it's going to be hundreds and hundreds of birds on the different colonies that are, are li- liable to have, have died through this weather. And even those that maybe have been displaced and have su- sort of successfully got somewhere else to feed, um, whether they are then able to sort of work their way back um, to suitable nest sites, uh, only time will tell. You're researching all of this, yes, but I wonder, because you've known so many of these birds since they were chicks, does it feel like a personal loss as well? It does, because we know these individuals, so we've, you know, there'll be ones that 
maybe I've even ringed 20 years ago and and therefore I've sort of followed them um, with each uh, successive season. I'll have um, monitored the number of chicks they reared in every one year and um, what those chicks have gone on to do. So there's sort of generations worth of sort of knowledge and familiarity with, with each individual. Um, and, and some of them that I've uh, we've had reported back as as having died and the, the ring number comes in to us and it's uh, immediate recognition of who that bird was and uh, you know I'll know oh yeah I can remember yes that's a male and I'll know um, recall where on the island it nests and, and the fact that they you know don't move too much in the breeding season that they're, they're around you know nesting more or less the same place every year so you you get that sort of individual picture and to know that it's it's failed to survive you know a, a, a storm of, of 10 days or so and and you know we won't be seeing it again next breeding season or back on its uh, its ledge to rear more chicks is is quite depressing have you ever seen anything like this before we've had previous events well, the last one was about 11 years ago but the number of birds that are coming in reported dead up to now uh, suggests that this may be far worse than previous events um, in the past. The, the worst we've known is we've lost half the breeding population, but the number of reports coming in and the complete absence of birds, not just where we are out on the Isle of May, but um, up and down the coast, the, there's just very few sightings of live birds, makes us fear that we're into a, an event that's that's far worse than what we've had in any previous year. Mark, thank you. Pleasure. That was Mark Newell in Peebles, Scotland. He works for the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology and is the field manager of the Isle of May. He was a wide-eyed giant who instilled sheer wonder in the hearts of children. Some children. In other children, he created and nurtured a dark, nameless horror, a slowly swirling void like a whirlpool of viscous tar in the center of their hearts. It really depended. If you grew up in St. John's, Newfoundland, and Labrador, you may remember the happy tree fondly, or with a shudder. The tall, googly-eyed tree towered over his space in the city's Avalon Mall for years, accepting charitable donations and speaking to children through a pair of mechanical lips. But now he's hanging up his ornaments. This year, the happy tree is retiring and being replaced by a digital elf called Avi. Our colleague Daryl Roberts checked in to see whether people were relieved now or more scared. Uh, that sucks. It was part of it was the spirit, the spirit of growing up in Newfoundland. Happy tree, seen in the mall, it looks hilarious, and what it did for kids is great. I think the happy tree guy was a really talented speaker and engaging, so um, I hope he goes on to better things or at least enjoys retirement. Do you have childhood memories uh, with the happy tree? I'm sorry, no, I came here as an adult, but I would always stop to talk to him when I went to the mall. Mixed feelings, uh, mixed between it was mildly terrifying, but also a bit of heritage and a bit of history for us, so a little bit of both. What was terrifying about that? Kind of explain that for me. There was someone inside there talking to the children, which I don't think the children understood. So I thought it was a like truly a cartoon tree come to life. What do you think about the happy tree retiring this year? It's kind of sad, really. Uh, when you think about it, 
it was kind of an iconic thing with the uh, Avalon Mall area. And just to replace it by something that's virtual seems less than Christmassy. Do you have any memories with the Happy Tree yourself? I do. I used to bring my daughter to see the Happy Tree at least every couple of weeks. She really enjoyed it. I think that it is very traditional for Newfoundlanders who have like shopped in the Avalon Mall to always have the Happy Tree. So I think it's kind of sad. It's kind of like time passing and everything's kind of changing. So it's just an adjustment, but it's, it's sad for a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> So the happy tree is retiring. What do you think about it? I think it's very devastating. It's like a, a icon of the Avalon Mall. I know the Avalon Mall made some changes, but why make the change to Avalon Happy Tree? I mean, maybe do some upgrades, but not retire him. It's so sad. <laughs> it, it seems like everything has gone virtual. I mean, yeah, he was sort of virtual, but he was like present. Like you could see him, you could interact, but I don't know. It's just, it's just too bad. Don't cry because it's over, but smile because it happened, and we're really going to miss him. CBC <laughs> reporter Daryl Roberts speaking with St. John's residents about the happy tree. He stands a majestic three feet high. He's fearless in the face of traffic, and he is well-nigh impossible to catch. We don't know what he calls himself, but locals in West Orange, New Jersey, call him Turkules. He is a wild turkey who settled in on a patch of grass by a roadway in West Orange this summer, strutting around in the middle of the street, pecking tires, causing traffic jams and evading authorities. None of these things necessarily endear a newcomer to a community. Trust me, I, I learned that the hard way. But for some reason, when Turkules did all those things all the time, they just loved him more. But Turkules' last stand came on Tuesday when the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection announced that after weeks of trying, they'd finally captured the bird and relocated him to a state forest. Gia Garcia is a local cafe owner and a Turkules fan. We reached her in West Orange. Gia, what do you miss most about Turkules? Oh, I miss his precocious behavior for sure and just his spunk he's very headstrong that that is for sure he i i like to think of him as a two or three year old toddler in a <laughs> bird body that's how headstrong he is yes so precocious <laughs> and headstrong but others would say uh, a nuisance he pecked at car tires stood in the middle of the road long long traffic jams have been attributed you know, to turkeys why do you love you him know, anyway I, I keep asking for those names. I really do, because um, I don't see why. I mean, at the beginning, when at the beginning, yes, fucking traffic is a bit of annoying. But once you found out why, you got you grew to love him. Like everybody wanted to be stuck in traffic just to get a sighting of Turkey. That's how crazy he is. Maybe it doesn't come across in photographs. What is what is the charm that Turkey's wields? Well. I mean, picture this. Picture seeing a turkey. Mm-hmm. He's, like, magnificent. Like, he's huge. <laughs> and there's a trank dart sticking out of him. And he's just walking around <laughs> with it. Like, walking around. Like, like the Terminator. Like, nothing happened at all. And there's, there's this dart hanging out of him. And we're like, uh, is he okay? So your first thought is, like, is he okay? Who did this? 
And then you found out, okay, well, they've been trying to move him, and he refuses to move. <laughs> so I'm not going anywhere. So officials had, had, had tranquilized him or tried to, and it didn't yeah. work, as you say. But then, And it didn't work. And it didn't work. But this time they did relocate Turkulis. So how are you feeling about that? Oh, well, the news is, is breaking slowly throughout town, the mm-hmm. town right now that he's been relocated to uh, Cranberry, New York. And let's just say we've all been trying to map out how far it is from our homes to go visit him. <laughs> it's 85 miles or, or just under 140 kilometers. Oh, well, yeah, it's a road trip. I think we're all going to caravan because it's it's the talk in town. Like we need to we need to know he's OK. We know he's OK. But we kind of wish that he was relocated closer to home. But I get it. They tried and he found his way back. So I think they're trying to give him distance. But we just feel like he's going to find his way back to that spot where he loves. And it's in West Orange. So, yeah. What's your theory (laughs) on why he loves that spot so much? You know what? We really don't have one other than, like, he's reclaiming the land. (laughs) 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 He's just like, we have no idea. He just did not want to leave this one spot. And he was very protective of it. So... We didn't question it. It was just like protect this bird at all costs. Like, bird, you know, he's for president 2024 at this <laughs> point. So, <yeah. laughs> That's where things are at there. When did yeah. he first enter your life? When did you first meet Hercules? Uh, I Well, I first heard of him like maybe two months ago. Okay. And then I had the pleasure of physically seeing him for myself three weeks ago. Like you, you hear about this bird for like a month and you, everybody wants to catch a sighting of him and then you see him and you're like, oh my God, he, he's beautiful. Does Turkulis like all the, all the attention when people are staring at him? I believe he did. Um, I, again, he was pecking at tires. Yeah, because maybe they were rude to him. Who knows? I don't know. But <laughs> I know in traffic, uh, he would literally walk up to your window and you could roll it down and you say, Turkeys, like, sweetie, we have to get home. Like, you got to get out of the road. And he would, like, stare at you and just be like, I know, but I'm walking the road right now. So can you just wait? You know, like, there's a conversation had <laughs> being had when he stared at you. And he would, like, <laughs> come up to your window and just like stare at you and just kept going down the line of cars you know so yeah he's he's a special bird he definitely is a special bird but he also i understand there was a hometown hero event how did he bring everybody together yeah okay so the hometown hero day came about because obviously it's thanksgiving today and we were so in love with him so we're like let's band together and i kind of like came up with the idea because i'm a small business owner Mm -hmm. in town and i was like what if we get like a bunch of businesses together and we make a the Saturday before Thanksgiving be hometown hero day. And it's all about turkeys and a portion of our sales go towards the wildlife society that, you know, came out to check on him. And I got a bunch of like my friends in the neighborhood who have businesses to, to band together. And we'd give like specials and offers. And I p- made like a whole line merch <laughs> line of t-shirts and we had ornaments made. And it was just amazing because people from all over, not only West Orange, heard about it and they came and they purchased t-shirts and ornaments for their Christmas tree, et cetera, and, you know, supported other small businesses in the, in the efforts of like being part of like saving this bird and giving back in some form. And it was an amazing day for West Orange. 
and everyone was excited. And today, I believe a lot of people are wearing their T-shirts today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> what, what's on their plates? That's on their T-shirts. Uh, but you what's... know what? I don't listen. Okay, I don't cross those lines, <laughs> but but okay. So, <laughs> what, are but you yeah, serving it, turkey it, today? I, I plead the fifth. Mm. <laughs> I feel like people think turkeys um, is a separate category. Yes, we we would not eat turkeys. Maybe the cousins, but not turkeys. You know, like <laughs> not him. <laughs> I feel like turkeys would have a few things to say about this. What do you think he's up to I, in his new home, other than plotting his return? You know, I think he's sitting there, feathers interlocked, and is just plotting his return. <laughs> I I want to. Be, I don't believe he's happy in Cranberry on 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 Thanksgiving Day, Cranberry, New Jersey. I don't know who's sick twisted humor that was putting them in cranberry new jersey but <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah so but i do hope that he's comfortable he has all the land to roam on and he meets new friends and he's happy so yeah gia thank you for your time happy thanksgiving you're welcome thank you so much <laughs> have a great day you too okay bye-bye Gia Garcia runs the Willow and Olivia Cafe in West Orange, New Jersey. That's where we reached her. Little known fact, that's my long-time nickname. Uh, Turkey. Yeah. <laughs> Starting oh, now. Okay. No, maybe not. That's maybe right. Not. Uh, Never. He won't be using it for a minute anyway. <laughs> but when he comes back, he's going to have words with you. <laughs> Even for people who have no interest in Dutch politics, yesterday's election in the Netherlands was shocking. The far-right politician and provocateur Gert Wilders, leader of the Party for Freedom, will very likely be the country's next prime minister. During the campaign, he said he would restrict immigration and hold a referendum on whether the Netherlands should leave the European Union. You've heard his name on this program before. Mr. Wilders has a long record of anti-Islam policies and provocations. His party has advocated for closing Muslim schools and mosques and banning the Quran. Moussen Koktash is the head of CMO, a Dutch Muslim organization. We reached him in Eiselstein in the Netherlands. Moussen, is this the result you were expecting in this election? Uh, not really. This is uh, for us as a disappointed uh, result. Uh, we are not expected these results, actually, because uh, the Geert Wilders uh, party program uh, is known. It is against all the laws, uh, Dutch laws, actually, mm -hmm. uh, against the Dutch uh, constitution. But uh, the yeah, Dutch uh, people uh, have voted up, up his party. So, uh, what does that tell you that he won? His party won thirty-five seats. Uh, there is a uh, difficult uh, period for Muslims and for me too, actually. What concerns you most? We we told our listeners just a moment ago in the introduction to this conversation some of the things he's been saying, some of the things he, he uh, ran on during this campaign. But what are your biggest concerns about what he has said? He uh, sees us not a Dutch uh, citizen. He sees Muslims all, because, as not Dutch. Yeah, 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 precise, uh, precise this. He, he said actually... Uh, that uh, the the Islam is has no place in the Netherlands, so that's the reason why the Islamic schools, Quran, and also the the mosques. He says and, he uh, he, he has said he wants to do that. 
Yeah, yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wants to forbid the uh, uh, head skirts, therefore Muslim women, mm -hmm. uh, on the uh, government uh, buildings. Uh, so there is a very big problem uh, will be created, actually, he, if he uh, try to apply that, that rule. Because uh, the many uh, Muslim women uh, working on the uh, government, uh, the ministries or, or, or the local government uh, as uh, as an employee. So uh, this is very big concern, actually. Do you think he will actually do those things? Some have pointed to a change in tone. It depends on the uh, the other coalition members. I don't know which uh, the coalition members. There is uh, no. There is actually three uh, other parties. Uh, the the FVD, the party of uh, former Prime Minister uh, uh, Rutte, mm -hmm. and uh, and the, the new one, the, the NCS uh, NSC. Actually, is the new one. It gets also twenty uh, uh, members of Parliament. So these two parties, uh, if they do the same. And then uh, it is. It, it can be uh, the the headquarters will be forbidden in the uh, government buildings. What kind of reaction are you hearing from from other Muslims who you know and you're speaking to? Many people, uh, many Muslims, think actually uh, concerned about their future. But uh, the, the other, on the other side, uh, we uh, trust the Dutch constitution mm -hmm. and laws, and also Dutch people. Uh, who is not voting on the uh, right uh, parties. So I got uh, many uh, mails uh, from the Dutch people, individuals, that they say uh, they are supporting us. And uh, we are uh, working together with the other religion community, uh, Jewish and, and uh, Christian community, and to protect uh, the democracy. The discrimination is a very big problem at this moment in the Netherlands. It the, will be worse. Discrimination. You think it will be worse? Why yeah. do you think it's getting worse? Yeah, because who gets a uh, 37 uh, member of parliament is against the Muslims. So, uh, but he said last uh, time, last week actually, that he, uh, the prime minister is for all Dutch. But uh, I am not sure if he see us also a Dutch. Do you think he'll actually problem. become prime minister? He will become prime minister, yes. Mm -hmm. I hope not, but uh, there is uh, two other big parties and he, uh, they will uh, work together with, uh, with mm -hmm. Geert Wilders. René Couperis, who's a research fellow at a Think Tank, said that he thinks that this is not a, an anti-Islam vote or an anti-EU vote, but it's an anti-establishment signal so that, that you know, people are really concerned about the housing crisis, for example, and other issues, that, that they're not necessarily against Muslims. What do you make of that, of that assessment? Now, if you uh, hear Wilders listen to speeches, uh, the one and uh, biggest uh, issue he described it was the uh, migration and the Islam. So this is uh, absolutely, uh, um, yeah, there is uh, the many people who vote on PVV think the same. So how does it feel to walk around in your city, in your country, knowing that? 
Now that there is an, uh, uh, yeah, one third of the Dutch people vote on Geert Wilders, but uh, uh, two thirds of the Dutch people doesn't. So there is the majority is uh, don't think uh, as Geert Wilders. Moussin, thank you for your time. You're welcome. Thank you too. That was Moussin Koktash, head of the Dutch Muslim organization CMO. We reached him in Eiselstein, the Netherlands. Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandeville disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app. Kyo Lee is a decorated Korean-Canadian poet. She's been shortlisted for the RBC Bronwyn Wallace Award for Emerging Writers. Her work has been published in the New York Times. Her debut collection is coming out next year. And she just won the $6,000 CBC Poetry Prize. I should also probably mention that she's 16. Fortunately, none of her success has made her jaded. I'm overwhelmed with gratitude, really. Um, Specifically for this award, um, it wasn't something I was expecting, nor is it like something that I'm expecting for any of, was it something I was expecting for any of the other awards. So every time it's just like so incredible. Um, and honestly, I just feel so much gratitude for um, the people who have helped me get here and the people um, who have um, accepted these poems in all these places. Um, and I would say I really started uh, writing in the eighth grade because of my English teacher at the time, to whom I owe everything in my personal and professional writing journey. Um, I found no way of contacting her still, but Miss H, if you come across this, please contact me. Um, so ever since I first started writing, I was drawn to poetry. Um, I think a lot of people, including myself at the time, believe that poetry is easier than other forms of writing because it's shorter, uh, less structured, and... Um, more free. Um, I've been unsubscribed from this notion, though uh, poetry has <laughs> proven me wrong. It's not inherently easier. Um, I might argue that writing a poem is easier than, per se, an essay, but making a poem good is more difficult. Um, I'm still the most drawn to poetry, though, for now. Um, I'm deeply fond of a poem's ability to contain so many stories at once. Um, you were one of five shortlisted for the CBC Poetry Prize. Uh, the title of your work is Lotus Flower Blooming into Breasts. <laughs> T tell us tell us the story behind this. Um, okay. The poem <laughs> really started as I recognized the discrepancies between my personalities in different languages. Um, for me, this was clearest in love, uh, who and how and why I love so that's a main focus in the poem, um, especially the relationship between love and the continued effects of, you know, war, colonialism, and related personal and cultural history. Um, but I like to think that the poem is more focused on growing out of some of these broken definitions of love or mending and 
caring for them. CBC Poetry Prize winner Keo Lee of Waterloo, Ontario, speaking with the CBC's Craig Norris this morning. To read Keo's full poem, which you should, head over to cbcbooks.ca. Especially you, Ms. H, if you're listening. Five-year-old Zyla Shulman has a rare congenital condition called microtia. It prevents ears from fully developing in utero. That means Zyla has a tiny nub where her right ear would be. But in January, Zyla will visit a plastic surgeon in California for a brand new ear implant. First, though, she needed some 3D scans of her left ear. Millennia Shulman is Zyla's mother. We reached her in Nelson, B.C. Millennia, where did you have to go to get those 3D scans of Zyla's ear? We went to Simon Fraser University to the archaeology department. So how did you even find out that that's something you could do there? Well, actually, I met a mother that lives in Toronto, and her son got the same surgery that my daughter Zyla is going to have. And when her son got the surgery, they went to Toronto to some university there to get the scan. So I asked her for the contact information and I contacted them thinking that maybe we would go there as well rather than travel to California for the scan. Mm -hmm. Um, However, um, when I contacted the Toronto University, they told me that they had someone in Vancouver that could possibly do it. So they connected me with um, the Simon Fraser University Mm -hmm. and... Hugo was who was my main contact. Hugo and Cardoso, he's the chair of the of the department there. Yeah, Hugo Cardoso. And he basically told me that he could do it for us and they were excited. And that's how we connected with them. And I didn't actually even realize what he did and what department he was from <laughs> until we got there. So when you did realize it's an archaeology lab, what did you think? You know what, when we got there, I was just... I was overwhelmed by the whole thing and their kindness and generosity. And we got there and then he started telling us about the work that he actually does and the trips that he takes and what they actually use the machine for and that this is really special and unique for them. So when we got there, we were just kind of blown away by the whole situation Mm -hmm. and what they actually do and the fact that they were just so willing to help us. How did Zyla react to getting her ears scanned? Well, Zyla's a shy little girl and she, you know, she's very good in terms of sitting through things. And like my other daughter, Zyla is very calm and she was able to sit through the whole process. And, you know, you have to sit there for quite a while and they did over 800 photos of her ear. So it was over an hour, multiple little sessions. Mm-hmm. She was calm. She thought, you know, it was really cool. She spent a lot of time drawing on their little whiteboard. Um, yeah. Does she understand what is happening? I think she understands as much as a five-year-old can. Mm-hmm. You know, we tell her she's going to get a big ear. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and she'll ask questions like, will it hurt? And I try to explain that she'll be asleep and stuff. And I think the thing that she's the most excited about is the fact that she will get her ears pierced and she'll get earrings. <laughs> so that's her big excitement. And, and how soon after the surgery are you going to do that? No, they're going to pierce it during the surgery. Oh, why not? While you're in yes. there. Right. Good yeah, idea. right. That's <laughs> what so she's going to wake up and... You know, yeah. when she's going to leave and she'll have she'll have her ears pierced. That's great. Exactly. She, she gets to pick the earrings when she gets there. So I think it'll be something to look <laughs> forward and something to calm her. She's five, uh, as we've said, and surgery to to make an ear using rib cartilage. It's different than the surgery you're going to have done is they usually wait until a child is at least 10, as as I understand it. Why did you not want to wait? Why did you want to go this route and, and travel to have this, this surgery in California? There's kind of two reasons. And one of the big reasons is the surgery that they do in Canada is using the ribs and you have to wait till they're much older. So the rib reconstruction surgery is not as aesthetically pleasing as this one. So a normal ear like yours and mine will protrude whereas the ones with the rib reconstruction, they won't. They're very flat. Mm -hmm. And from the results and the research I've done, they just don't look as good. And also waiting till they're 10 years old is a long time. And when you go to school, I mean, we've all gone to school and we know that people, kids can be mean and She's already experienced kids asking about it and pointing and staring. And we just wanted to make her life as easy as possible. And on top of that, the surgery in California is really specialized and unique. Um, the implant is a 3D scan of her actual big ear. And then they print it a little bit bigger to match size as she grows. And it's just, it looks beautiful. It's a beautiful one-piece um, implant for her. The, the surgery we know won't won't uh, improve Zyla's hearing, but how do you think it will change her life? Well, I think it will greatly improve her confidence. Um, and she definitely, you know, with her shyness, I think that being different and knowing that she's different, I think she she can feel that. So we're really hoping that it helps boost her confidence. And then it's going to be helpful for her in practical ways. She's going to be able to wear sunglasses because right now she can't and she gets really frustrated. You know, we go swimming and her goggles fall all the time because she doesn't have that ear to stop it. When COVID happened, she couldn't wear a mask because she didn't have a way to, you know, hook on the mask. So it's just going to be better in those practical ways and then i also think she's just going to love the look of it and those you know, feel and she's <laughs> gonna love having earrings because she always wants my earrings so yeah what about for you you know as her parents what is it going to be like for you guys I try to imagine what it's going to be like. I try to imagine what she's going to look like. It's a really hard thing to visualize when, you know, I know Zyla as Zyla and as her face is. And to me, she's beautiful. Um, so it's, it's a weird concept. Um, but I am looking forward to her, just seeing her reaction to it. And I think I try not to let people's stares and questions get to me but we're human and 
you know, it can affect you when people are staring at your daughter or asking questions. And I'm looking forward to that not being part of my everyday life. Well, maybe we'll speak with you in January after the surgery, Melania. Thank you. And Zyla. Thanks very much, Melania. Yeah. That's my pleasure. We reached Melania Shulman in Nelson, B.C. Right now, there are about 20 tents pitched at Halifax's Grand Parade, which is a designated site for people who have no housing to set up camp. But now the city says some of those tents will have to go. It wants to bring the number of tents in the square down to eight, citing safety concerns ahead of the winter. Officials say no one will be forcibly removed from the Grand Parade and that outreach workers will help people find another place to go. But in a tight housing market, residents say what they really need is a permanent place to stay. Leah Zink is currently living at the Grand Parade with her boyfriend. We reached her there. Leah, the city says no one is going to be forced to leave the Grand Parade, but it does want fewer people camping out there. Are, are you going to leave? Um, I will if other people are choosing not to. Like, again, by all means, not looking to cause any uh, chaos or mayhem. Do you think that they'll be able to get it down to eight, the city? They, says, they say it's about you know, making sure it's safe for the people who are going to stay during the winter? I do know that there might be a couple people who might be able to get housing soon. Mm -hmm. So it could work. But also, again, worst comes to worst, we'll be one of the people to move our tents to make sure that the people who want to stay here can stay here. How long have you and your boyfriend been there? We've been here for about over a month. Mm -hmm. um, but in total, um, tenting since August. And we did an Airbnb for a few weeks. Then we ended up in the Grand Parade. You both work. Uh, yep. you, you were renting before. You tried to get an Airbnb, as you said. Tell our listeners what happened. I lost my housing um, just because my dad had passed away. Um, oh, I took some time off work to collect myself. Um, kind of lose, kind of lost my job and my place in the process. Um, and then I've been just trying to get back on my feet since. Mm -hmm. um, but. Otherwise speaking, there's no reason why we can't rent. You're prepared to pay rent, but you're not able to find a place to rent. Why Why is that? Prices are high. Um, people kind of, it's kind of like a first come, first serve. Mm -hmm. um, Facebook Marketplace is a very popular place to try to get a place. A lot of people will rent rooms, but not rooms to couples or will rent a bachelor apartment, mm -hmm. but will only want one person for it and will want an incredible amount of money for it too. I don't know. It just it's just really hard to get places these days like and then especially with pricing. We mentioned that you that you both work as well. Um what is that like when you also have to live in a tenting situation? Well, on your average day at home doing laundry, um making your food, preparing food or meals for work, um that is kind of hard to do on a daily basis in a tent because um, there's sources. Um, if, say, you're short on uh, laundry money in one month, um, you have to go to a, a free place to go do it and a free place to go eat some food because um, you can't really cook, by all means, in a tent all the time. Like, mm -hmm. there's only so many hot dogs and dry noodles you yeah. can eat, right? <laughs> um, but there's places where 
we can go get laundry done and eat food. But that takes, it's so time consuming in a day. It takes up the whole day. Um, so we have to do it on our days off. And so if we're working a lot, it, it, it's really tough. It's frustrating. We make it work. Um, we also have sometimes have friends who will let us do laundry at their, at their house, um, which really is helpful. But um, can't always do that. Is there a reason you chose this particular facility as opposed to the emergency shelter or the other outdoor spaces? What's drawing people um, to the Grand Parade? Yeah, the Grand Parade, well, uh, itself, there's so much history, like, mm-hmm. and it's a well-respected area. Um, I don't know. It's 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 just a secured area. Um, and compared to, like, a, lo- a lot of other tenting places, um, especially in Halifax, there's a lot of volume of, uh, say, bad habits. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just didn't feel safe. It didn't just kind of couldn't connect with anybody. It wasn't, it wasn't really good, to put it that way. Um, and the Grand Prix just, it serves less volume to people here mm-hmm. keep, keep to themselves. And also, um, we have Steve here that's been, uh, volunteering, um, and trying to get like movement forward about people being homeless. Your story, the reason I asked about, you know, what your path was to the Grand Parade is because I think across the country, there's many people in in the same situation or or very close to being in the same situation, you know, people with jobs and the ability to rent, but can't uh, find a place to stay. And for some, it's, it's, they aren't able to rent um, or or find a place. So what, what do you want people who are listening to know? What would have, what would have helped you and, and your boyfriend uh, in in those months where you were struggling to find housing, well, that the housing crisis would uh, kind of be better or more controlled or more st- more stability in that area. The housing problem uh, yeah. sucks, um, especially out here in Halifax, and I imagine it's bad in other places too. Mm-hmm. We just need more. We need more resources and um, options and more affordable housing options to be set in place for people who are working and who don't make a lot of money. As these outreach workers come through the encampment, Leah, and and talk to people, what would you like to hear from them? To come up with options, just to bring some more resources to the table than just offering shelter. Like, because if shelter is not going to fix the situation at all, we all need a place that's livable and kind of have our own space, especially when we're more than willing and capable of paying for one. When do you think you'll be able to to find something permanent and the kind of shelter that, that you're willing to pay for? Hopefully. I'm crossing my fingers for very soon. Yeah. I hope that for you too, Leah. Thank you for your time. Yes, thank you. Leah Zink has been sleeping at Halifax's Grand Parade for the past month. That's where we reached her. In a statement to the CBC, the city of Halifax says outreach workers have started talking to residents to find alternative accommodations. And it says the site will remain a designated shelter space. Anglerfish are weird. To hate... I didn't say it first. An Alabama fish expert, presumably with multiple degrees, told the New York Times that exact thing recently. And she said, quote, just when you think they couldn't get any weirder, anglerfish outdo themselves, unquote. 
She was commenting on a paper published earlier this month in the Journal of Fish Biology that found some of those creatures, whipnose anglerfish for, for clarity, swim upside down. Andrew Stewart is the curator of fishes at the Museum of New Zealand, New Zealand at Te Papa Tongarewa. He's also the lead author of this paper. We reached him in Auckland, New Zealand. Andrew, when you first saw one of these fish swimming upside down, did you think you were imagining things? No, I'd um, seen a paper uh, many years ago which just had some still shots of one anglerfish that was seen in deep water off Hawaii. But what wasn't known was, is this abnormal behavior? And so it was at that time something of a curiosity. Yeah, was it the question was, was it whether it was just one wonky fish doing, doing its own thing? Yeah, one wonky fish doing something unusual. As soon as I got that second image sent to me from the Kermadec Trench, I realized, no, there's something more here. The paper records uh, eight records from uh, around the planet. We've identified four putative species in that in that mix. The fact that all of these instances, you've managed to, to corral them, what does it tell you? Um, that this is the normal behavior for these fishes. And in one of the video clips, which hasn't been included as a link on the um, paper, uh, showed the anglerfish being tumbled by the propellers from the submersible, and it, it was flicked the right way up, and then it immediately reverted to being upside down again. So why do they use so this, this method? It, if you look at the um, at the picture of them, you'll mm-hmm. see that they've got a long projecting snout, and the lure comes off the tip of that snout. And we believe that the articulation point for that lure, if they were swimming right way up and lunged at prey, there's a very good chance that the lure would bend back around and into the mouth and it would be something of an own goal. (laughs) Whereas if they're swimming inverted, yes, you don't want to be doing that. If they're swimming inverted, that means that as they lunge forward at prey, the water pressure actually flicks the lure back uh, behind the body and out of harm's way from either something snapping at it or um, getting tangled in their own mouths. They're very crafty, these anglerfish. Oh, yes. I mean, down in the deep ocean, you know, these are, these are the two of the three big questions. You know, how do I find a meal and how do I avoid becoming somebody else's meal? <laughs> how do you think they're doing in terms of answering it? They've got a pretty good one. Oh, they're, they're doing very successfully. Um, as I noted in the paper, we have one in our collection in, at the Museum of New Zealand that had a, a gonatted squid in its stomach. And it wasn't just a little wee baby squid. This prey item was a good half the body length of the anglerfish. Now, you, what you've got to realize is that squid have got this phenomenal ability to, to accelerate from zero to whatever in, in a fraction of a second. And for an anglerfish just to sort of be able to sneak up and then lunge quickly enough to grab it. It shows that the, it's a very successful strategy. And the squid you were talking about, there was a squid researcher in the room when you found that squid, is that right? Yes, he, he was a friend of mine. He came in to say hi. And uh, what are you working on? I'm looking at this group called gonatids. They're really rare. We hardly have any in the collection here. And I had just thawed this um, slender anglerfish. And I said, oh, there's something in its stomach. Should we have a look and see what it is? And uh, I opened it up and out came the very thing he was wanting to work on. And he he couldn't believe it. It's kind of nice that we have the predator and the prey both um, together in in our collection. Yeah. Uh, What's what's the reaction been from from other researchers in the anglerfish community to, to your work? 
they're pretty excited. You know, um, doesn't seem to take much to get us excited. But um, <laughs> so much of what we know about the deep ocean up until fairly recently, we've had to sort of surmise from animals that we've recovered from the deep in trawls and nets and dredges. And they look kind of sad. And you're looking at the body shape and you're thinking, well, I think it must work like this or they might do that. But now with the advent of ROVs and submersibles, we're now seeing these things alive in their environment. And, you know, dare I say it, they actually look quite beautiful mm -hmm. as opposed to how they look when they're sitting on the deck of a trawler or in your lab. Do you think they've been misunderstood? Uh, have they been misunderstood? They've been characterized as grotesque and ugly and monsters, but um, because it's the females that have the lure and all the really exciting, cool characters. I refer to them as my lovely girls uh, because I say they're so ugly, they're beautiful again. Are, so just you said it was just the, the, the females. Do the males not swim upside down then? We don't know what the males do. We think they probably swim the, probably the, quote, right way up maybe. They're characterized by looking like tadpoles mm -hmm. with very large eyes relative to their body size and very large, well-developed nostrils. So the hypothesis is that they're like Peter Pan. They're living up in the, um, in the higher in the water column until they decide or get to a point where they want to mate. They go looking for the females, but it's the dark ocean. It's 1,000 meters. There is no light coming from the sun down there. There's only bioluminescence. Mm -hmm. So they're hunting her based on smell. She's maybe releasing a pheromone. Who knows? Having found her, they then have to sort of like a spider, approach and, and not become a meal because she's probably not going to be too selective as to what's around. So um, much so much to and, take away and, from and, this. And, <laughs> I know. In some cases, the males become parasitically attached to the females. Mm. So they become a lifestyle gigolo. Uh, their blood vessels <laughs> fuse and they synchronize their maturation and spawning. And then from all accounts, they just shrivel up and drop off like warts leaving behind some embedded teeth in the skin as a kind of souvenir <laughs> of boyfriend's past. You're just making this up now, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> I swear I'm not. And, I, and if your listeners are, are interested in, in this at all, my co-author Ted Peach has written a, a wonderful book called Oceanic Anglerfishes. And it's a compilation of all the knowledge about these fascinating fishes, mm. their biology, their taxonomy, Everything you would ever want to know about a deep water anglerfish is in this book. It, it'll make a great Valentine's Day gift, I think, based on the story yeah, you just told. I think so, yes. Andrew, yes. I appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the interview. <laughs> Andrew Stewart is the curator of fishes at the Museum of New Zealand Te Papa Tangarewa. He's in Auckland. They're big, they're bristly, they're obstreperous, and they eat everything. The super pigs are coming, and they cannot be stopped. The feral pigs population continues to grow in western Canada, while some states in the U.S. are sounding the alarm over their southern spread. And Canadian professor Ryan Brooks says they are right to be panicking, because these invasive hogs are not easy to get rid of. This week, Professor Brooke told the Associated Press that we could kill 65% of the wild pig population and their numbers would still increase. And against all odds, hunting them actually has a negative effect on population control. 
Our former host, Karoloff, spoke with Professor Brook on this program in 2021 when the wild pigs were seen in Alberta's Elk Island National Park for the first time. From our archives, here's an encore presentation of that interview. Ryan, what is your biggest concern now that these wild pigs have been discovered in Elk Island National Park? Well, I guess my biggest concern, to be perfectly honest, is that this is another major red flag about this global problem we have, and indeed Canada-wide problem we have with wild pigs spreading uh, out of control. And so unfortunate reality is this is something that I predicted many, many years ago and uh, been rather challenged. And, you know, sometimes you, you're happy to say, I told you so, but in this case, it's really, really frustrating. What kind of damage can these wild pigs do? Well, there really are an ecological train wreck is the exact, I think, correct term here. They consume almost any kind of food. And so they eat lots of plants, but they also rip up the environment. So they get their nose into the ground and they tear up the soil and rip out roots and insect larvae. And so they, they create a huge mess. Uh, so it's not just a matter of eating some something and leaving, but they also, in the spring, they really hit nests hard and eat eggs from any number of ground nesting birds. Uh, they'll eat ducklings and uh, goslings in the spring and, and even, you know, adult animals, uh, anything up to and including an adult white-tailed deer is food for them. And so this, the range of impacts they have is truly remarkable. But they, And they also foul water systems and wetlands, don't they? Pigs don't have sweat glands like uh, us humans do. And so to stay cool, they wallow in mud in wetlands and wetlands and lay in the water. And they contaminate that water with E. coli, with salmonella. And yes, water quality suffers. And, and they do tremendous impacts on, on wetlands as well. But just give us a, a background as to where these, these animals come from, how they come to be here. Uh, in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, there was a push to diversify agriculture and get away from sort of conventional approaches. And, and we had elk ranches and emu farms and, and wild boar farms. And so these were brought over from Europe to be raised inside a fence for meat production primarily. And unfortunately, they escaped a lot. And even worse, they were released on purpose. People just got fed up. The market collapsed at, you know, sort of 2001 was the peak. And after that, it, it really just collapsed. And so, uh, without ability to sell them, people just cut the fence and let 100, 200, in some cases over 300 animals go in one shot. And that's that's where it started. And some experts said, well, that's not a problem because they'll never survive a Canadian winter. You know, it's with minus 30, 40 below. We see, you know, howling wind chills, all of that. But of course, they are very well adapted to the cold. They're very large, incredibly large. And uh, they do really well in our winters and survive just well. Thank you very much. And indeed, actually, the hot spots in Canada are places where we have among the coldest and longest winters. Do you have an estimate as to how many of these animals are in Saskatchewan and Alberta? That is definitely the most common question I've been asked over the last decade is how many. And we just don't have the resources to do that yet. But at some point, I think that having a handle on numbers is just absolutely essential. But these animals are huge. So what is it about them that makes them so difficult to find and to capture? They're incredibly smart. They're incredibly e evasive of people. And so they know if there's trouble, they start being active almost exclusively at night in, in total darkness. 
and they will hide under the heaviest, ugliest riparian cover and willows that you just can't find them. And so they're really smart. But as you say, massive animals, the biggest one we've handled is is about 300 kilos, which is uh, 638 pounds. So really, I mean, that's the extreme, of course, but certainly many, many animals to the two, three, 400 pounds is not uncommon by any stretch. And so, and, and these will travel in groups, uh, what we call a sounder, often six, eight animals, but certainly as many as three or four dozen. So the fact that they can hide and be so hard to reach is, is amazing. And part of that is they spend a lot of time under the snow and under the soil and sometimes under uh, large spruce trees as well. So they, they do use hiding cover incredibly well. What do you have to do? What, what, what needs to be done in order to, to get a handle of this invasive species? Well, I think that um, we really need to take that mindset that is the cornerstone to a lot of issues, whether it's COVID or forest fires or or cancer cells and other things, is that you need rapid detection and reporting, and you need very aggressive and very uh, and immediate action. Most importantly, we need leadership, and we need someone to tackle this, some agency or group to really lead the way on this and start to pull everybody together because there's no one agency that's going to get this done. It has to be everybody rowing in the same direction and have a science-based plan. We can't even consider moving forward without good leadership, you know, science-based strategies and and then looking at the that whole host of things that we can do. There are a lot of things like trapping and capturing with helicopter that can be effective. But if you just sort of throw those in without plans and cooperation and all that, then then you're getting nowhere fast. Trapping, uh, capturing them and destroying them? Yeah, that is really the only effective strategy is mortality-based efforts. Um, there's no place to move them to. There's nobody that wants them. And so... Um, there, you know, there's really no way to move the problem. And we have talked about, and there is quite a lot of research actually going on globally looking at sterilization methods. But the challenge with that is these animals can live for 14 or 15 years and spread disease and cause crop damage and, and put humans at risk in that. And so I would say that uh, anything that's non-mortality based is probably, and unfortunately, much of a distraction. But obviously, that would be the ultimate goal if there's ways to achieve this without having to actually euthanize animals. That would be an ideal. Ryan, we'll leave it there. I appreciate uh, you telling us the story. Thank you. Very good. From our archives, that was University of Saskatchewan Professor Ryan Brook talking to Carol Avon as it happens in 2021. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.